My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the classical classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Dr. Anna Maria Otamendi whose name she says way better than I do. No, you did a great job. Oh, thank you. (laughs) She is a Venezuelan pianist and a professor at the University of Houston. She's also a former HGO studio artist. So what are you going to be teaching me about today? Well, I would love to talk about probably what's my favorite piece of music, period, in any genre. Really? Yes. I'm kind of obsessed with this piece. What is it? What is it? It's The Rite of Spring by (gasps) Igor Stravinsky. Oh, you know, we had Igor Stravinsky on the show during our Halloween episode. Oh, wow. He came in person. Mm, He did, sort of, in a way. Um, (laughs) Well, okay, I think it's hilarious that we're talking about The Rite of Spring on a day like this. It is like 40-something degrees outside and rainy. So so what's up with... The right well, of spring. Houston's weather is bipolar. Yes. So at <laughs> I'm best. kinda getting used to it. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been in Houston? This is my third year. Oh my goodness. Yeah, but I really like it. Did you come from a place with actual seasons? Well, I'm originally from Venezuela, so we don't have any seasons. We just have dry season and rainy season. <laughs> That's about it. But the weather is very stable year long. In Caracas, at least, it's really nice. I'm, yeah. I'm spoiled rotten because it's between 70 and 80 all year long. But you're getting used to the weird weather here. Yes. But before coming here, I was in Michigan for oh. three years. Ooh. So my, my tropical blood was a little bit hurt yeah. <laughs> that winter. Oh, man, what a transition. Yes, so I, I'm quite happy with Houston's Good. weather, and I'm usually not here in the summers. So. so I know that you said you wanted to talk about the Rite of Spring, in part because this year marks the 100th anniversary of its debut. Correct. Um, and, and I know you're going to be doing a performance of this soon, which we'll talk about a little bit later, mm-hmm. but uh, tell me why it's your favorite piece. I think ever since the first time I heard it, it captivated me from the beginning until the very end. Like I was transfixed Mm -hmm. by the whole thing. And I think although it's 100 years old, it still has that power over the audience. It's rare unless it's a really boring conductor or a (laughs) terrible orchestra. It's rare that an audience wouldn't be, you know, enthralled by it. Um, And the more I listen to it, the more I find incredible colors in the orchestration the rhythms never fail to excite me mm-hmm. like every time I'm a little bit I don't know sad or, or I don't have a lot of energy I'll go and listen to a couple moments and immediately it's like an injection of energy for me yeah I, I heard that um on the program radio lab I don't know if you've listened to that but it's it's a public radio program we play on our sister station KUHF okay um they had a story about the Rite of Spring, about the debut. Uh-huh. And they were talking about how, um, you know, it, it, it basically started a riot mm-hmm. at the debut. People went bananas because they were <laughs> like, 
uh, they were driven insane by the crazy sounds. Well, that's just one of the many elements around this piece. You know, that's probably one of the most famous riots in the history of music. Uh-huh. And there are many different reasons for that riot. I think, first of all, the music was something that they somebody in 1913 would have never heard before. It right. was offensive for a lot of people. I think it would be like taking your grandmother to a heavy metal concert. <laughs> She'd probably be like, what is this? Please take me out, you know? <laughs> Great. Um, for many different reasons. And uh, the rhythmic quality is so violent sometimes. It's mm-hmm. very intense. It's very visceral and... Very wild. Yeah. And then the choreography was the same thing. It was very intense. It was very provocative. And yeah. It was very it was savage. So I think these two things, I th- some people loved mm-hmm. and some people hated. And then there was a very volatile political climate mm-hmm. when the piece was performed. It was 1913 in Paris. So it was about a year and a month before the beginning of World War One. And the, the, I think the environment was very tense. Yeah. Um, and everybody was sort of on their toes, and Paris was a place to be. So all the intellectuals and artists, the same as politicians, and all the important people were in Paris at some point during that time, in the, ten, the 1910s, 1920s. Mm. So I think that also had a part in this riot. So it's, it's funny because I think people started screaming You know, I guess at the beginning they were just whispering, like, what is this? And then, you know, it escalated until it was so loud between the people that were saying, shut up, stop it. And the people that were defending the peace that right. telling them to shut up. It escalated to a, such proportions that the dancers couldn't hear the music. And Nijinsky, which is the choreographer, mm-hmm. he was backstage clapping so they could keep dancing, so they really? could keep the rhythm. Yeah, because it was so loud. So I think we're just not used to reactions like this anymore, at least mm-hmm. not for sure, not in a classical music concert. Maybe you'll see something like this in a soccer match in right. Europe. You know, right. people get very <laughs> upset about their soccer, but never in a concert. Yeah. Um, and that, that's the kind of thing that this piece can do, even nowadays. Like some people that has never, a person that has never heard a piece would be yeah. probably shocked, maybe horrified, maybe absolutely fascinated yeah. by it. It is hard for us sort of contemporary people to to think about what it was like to hear music in general back then mm-hmm. you know we people didn't have access to the variety of music that we have access mm-hmm. to now Absolutely. and so it's very common to us to be able to hear anything, I- anything we want and so so it's it's hard to um shock us and it, it, which is a shame it's hard to shock us we have lost that capacity mm-hmm. of being amazed mm-hmm. that sort of wonder that kids have yeah even children now have lost it which is really a shame yeah. i think because that usually leads to creation and leads to a happier life in my opinion but anyway uh, absolutely like we have lost that completely and i feel that classical music has gone so far away from the audiences and mm-hmm. the people that that's why a lot of orchestras are having trouble Mm-hmm. Just managing a budget of any kind in so some, opera houses. Somebody needs to uh, write a new right of a new, spring. That'll be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we hear a little bit of the music so that so that our listeners can, who haven't heard it can experience just what is so crazy about this I piece. I would love for us to listen to the first movement, okay. which is this very famous bassoon solo. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
everything leads to believe, and this is something that he said at some point that then he denied, but uh, that this was a melody. Anyway, it's a it's a folk melody. Okay. Uh, that is, it's a actually verbatim. So he took the melody out of folklore. Really? Uh, yes. And this is supposed to be an instrument called dudka. Mm-hmm. And initially the movement was called dudki. Mm-hmm. He then later erased that and just called it an introduction. But it, this is our ancient sort of pipe type instruments from that time. And it's a very, very hard to play in the bassoon because it's very high. The bassoon is an instrument that plays mostly in a lower register. Mm-hmm. So this is incredibly high. It's very difficult for a bassoonist to make this sound, to, first of all, to make it sound at all and uh, to make it sound good. So then there comes the question, is it supposed to be beautiful? Is it supposed to be painful? Is it supposed to be jarring? So that also varies. Like Even for people that said that they heard Stravinsky said, no, I want this to sound painful and almost ugly. And then another person is like, no, he told me that he wanted more beautiful. Because <laughs> and he revised the score so many times. The last time being in 1967, it was like really? 54 years after the premiere. So I guess maybe his own perception of the piece changed. Mm-hmm. So that's why it makes it so contradictory. But in any case, um, he borrowed probably at least nine melodies out of Russian folklore, and then he denied that. He's like, no, no, this is all things that I imagined, and this is all mine. So. This is debatable. You can actually find the melodies, and they're very similar. That's just so. It's so crazy that he he so distanced himself from from his roots. Yeah, I, I think that's. I think that's just fascinating. That he's. I mean, he's. You know, like you said, he's clearly drawing on this folk folklore. You're looking at it, and you're saying, "No, that that's a Russian folk tale." Right, and no, he's like, no, this one. is abstract music. It doesn't mean anything, and it came all from my head. It's just like, okay, sure. All right, man. Sure, Igor. Whatever you say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The clarinets mm-hmm. are all the bass clarinets, also supposed to imitate the same ancient instruments. Mm-hmm. They're sort of, you know, improvising back then. They didn't have written music. Yeah. Um, so then he talks about in the same interview about how in this movement he wanted it's all like a constant mezzoforte mm-hmm. and in dynamic means like it's not loud but it's not soft. Either. Okay. And that he created dynamics with music. Uh, dynamics are basically that if it's loud, if it's soft, okay. only by adding instruments. So the melody itself didn't have like a crescendo or a diminuendo. Right. It was all about now come the strings and pizzicato, comes the clarinet, comes the oboe. Mm-hmm. And he also gives a big preference to wind instruments mm-hmm. the woodwinds yeah. and the brass. And then, of course, the percussion, not in this movement, but in the piece in general, because the percussion is the most rhythmic mm-hmm. of. Uh, the family of instruments and not so much to the strings which are much more like what he said the human voice mm-hmm. much more of what we're used to hearing in a regular symphony yeah. so uh, I think this first movement is a great example of that and just um, for him is like the awakening of the spring it's like the world waking up so you're saying that he instructed the musicians to play at a constant level Like each individual. That's at least what he said in that interview. That his idea is that everything was a constant metaphorical, and then he starts mm. adding and adding more instruments. And you're that's gonna, where the volume correct. comes from. And then you're gonna hear towards the end of the movement, it's like this craziness. What does that accomplish sonically? When you when you rather than you know having that sort of crescendo, you are just adding instruments. Like what? Well, what I guess do? a crescendo is like a more um, 
uniform way of accomplishing that. It's more organized in a way. Here um, you have all this melt. Like if you here, mm-hmm. everybody's playing something completely different. Yeah, you know, come the bases. So everybody is kind of. Uh, uh, it's it's like they're all warring. Well, like it's in nature. If, if it's awakening, you mm-hmm. know, the birds are are singing, and then the animals are waking up, and all the sounds in the woods, and there's a river, and there's a rustling of the winds. So they're all connected in a way, but they're all very different from each other. I see. So it's like being in a forest, and then all of a sudden everything comes to life. Yeah. And I think this is what he's trying to recreate here. And he says it's like the awakening of the spring, mm-hmm. of the world, and then this leads into the movement dance yeah. of the adolescence. So. I think it's fascinating. It's totally fascinating. And then this leads into the adolescence coming in with the wise, wise old woman, mm-hmm. which is what you just heard. Wow. Um, wow. So you see, all these elements um, add up into something that is completely different right. from anything else that was ever written before. Mm-hmm. And which is why even nowadays it grabs you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think people weren't used to this kind of rhythmic drive. Right. Like rhythm is the most powerful force behind the Rite of Spring. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that make makes it so revolutionary. Yeah. So I think watching an orchestra playing all in unison or all the string section mm-hmm. and all these harsh accents uh, and then seeing the ballet recreate this music, it yeah. makes it very powerful. Yeah, it's very like you can imagine a rock band playing yes, this part absolutely. of the song. Absolutely. It's so sort of, you know, I can hear power chords on a guitar, you know. I just love that. It's, it sounds like horror movie music. A little bit, yeah. Which I guess is kind of what it's um, indicating, isn't it? Because it's about. Like the piece of music is is about how, at least from what I understand, it's about spring, which is a lovely thing, but it's also kind of a crazy time of year. Yeah, well, I mean, the piece is constructed on the idea of uh, sacrifice mm-hmm. to spring. Mm-hmm. So it's all going around, going back to pagan Russia, mm-hmm. um, and how one virgin is elected for a sacrifice, and the virgin dances herself to death in the last movement. So yes, there, there's a, a very big element of violence mm-hmm. in the piece, that's inherent in the piece. Stravinsky himself, in an interview, in a very famous interview that he gave before the premiere of the, of the piece, he has some very interesting quotes, and I, I want to maybe read a couple of them. Yeah. But the funny thing is, Stravinsky was a big liar. Like, <laughs> it's, I think it's hilarious, because um, he pretty much, six days after the interview, mm-hmm. he negated every word. He was like, I never said that. I never said any of that. That's a lie. Somebody just wrote all that and put my name on it. I have no idea what that is. And then later on in his memoirs, he said some things that were similar, but then he refused them like a few years later. So he keeps contradicting himself all the time. Yeah. So it's really hard to know what things he actually said and actually what things he didn't, because there's, there isn't like a video of him speaking. You, know, right. that you can say, okay, look, there it is. Yeah. So maybe that also contributes to all this aura of mystery around the piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he says about this moment, he says that uh, some adolescent boys appear with a very old woman. 
whose age and even whose century is unknown. And then uh, a group of adolescent girls come in. They form a circle which mingles with the boys' circle. They are not entirely formed beings. Their sex is single and double, like that of the tree. Um, so he's talking about all these virgin girls, and he talks about the whole piece as uh, imitating the vague and profound uneasiness of a universal puberty, mm-hmm. which is spring. Right. Uh, but then, yet again, he always, he denied all this interview, but a lot of scholars think this is really him talking. Hmm. But for I think one of the reasons he refused his words were because there was such a big riot after the premiere. It was so shocking mm-hmm. that then he felt maybe he shouldn't have said those things and just keep music as a abstract. Right, that's what I was thinking, is that a lot of a lot of artists don't like to really talk about what it is that their, their, their work means, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. because... Because it's art, and it should mean what it means right. to the individual listener or viewer. Yeah, so maybe he he uh, maybe he had a little too much to drink. <laughs> Let his mouth lie. <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, I think there are some letters between him and Nicholas Rurich, mm-hmm. or Rurich, who was the guy whose concept was behind the piece and all the designs. Um, and they kept corresponding back and forth about the ideas, and it really clearly comes from the idea of pagan Russia, and it's called Pictures of Pagan Russia, mm-hmm. and the whole idea of spring and a sacrifice for spring. But then he denied all that, and he said the music is completely abstract, doesn't mean anything, and the music came first in the ballet, ballet is an accessory to the music. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you see the ballet, if you see the original choreography, I think it's very clear that it's not. <laughs> you know, it's it's clearly related. Yeah. Um, and it clearly comes from this sort of idea. The problem is that later on he went away from this Russian nationalism um, because after the Russian Revolution in 1917 all this idea of going back to the roots was lost in Russia all this idea of being back to the folk nature of Russian art was disposed right. so then Stravinsky himself this was his last work mm-hmm. that belongs to this category which is the three most famous ballets uh, that he wrote Firebird Petrushka and The Rite of Spring mm-hmm. so um, there are many reasons why maybe he didn't want to be involved with this kind of thing. He wanted to be a cosmopolitan man, then he went to the United States, and he became, you know, the figure of contemporary music at the time. So maybe, and he never came back to this particular style. Hmm. So uh, that's that's really interesting to me. So after the revolution in Russia, he goes he goes abroad. Um, well, I'm he was already he, he was already abroad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, uh, and but is it just that things changed so much in Russia after the revolution? Yeah. Things must have been it must have been very painful, probably, as a you know as a Russian to watch your country sort of just transform into this beast that that looked nothing like what you associated with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, which is funny because that's kind of like what Venezuela is going through right now. Yeah. So I can relate to that feeling. It must like, be so strange. I have no desire to live there anymore because it's terrible. The it's not the same are, place. No, it's not. So it, it is very painful. It yeah. is very painful. So maybe that, you know, maybe that had something to do with his sort of shirking that, that past. Yeah, that absolutely. Sort of so I think my goal today 
besides talking about the piece and introducing the piece for those of you who haven't heard it or those of you that have heard it but don't know much about it, I would like just to point out all the things that make the piece so revolutionary. Okay. Why is the Rite of Spring so famous? Why is it one of the most recorded pieces in history or the more performed? Um, so, well, we, we started with this movement, which is an icon, the dance of the adolescence, just to show you a little bit of that sort of wild quality and the rhythmic drive. Because I think that's the number one thing that makes the Rite of Spring so different. It's like rhythm is the king mm-hmm. versus what had been until then, which is harmony with Wagner. Like rhythm was towards the end of the list of important things for a composer. I mean, of course, it has to be rhythm, but in Wagner, he was almost trying to mask the rhythm as like there are no bar lines. Mm-hmm. There's just this constant evolution of harmony, whereas with the right, the rhythm is the most important thing. Um, so maybe perhaps, uh, since we're speaking about rhythm, uh, one other thing that he, he didn't create, but it definitely... Um, made a big impact and after him as well was polyrhythm. So it's when you have one rhythm going and then you add a completely different rhythm on top of it and then you keep doing this with very different instruments. Uh-huh. So you have this melody with the brass uh-huh. and then you have the, the percussion and then you start adding more and more instruments. And then you add the guiro, which is like 4-4. It sounds like a scratchy sound. Uh-huh. And then you get the other brass that, that came in, the horns. And it's like this cacophony. It's just a little... So that's what polar rhythm is. Yeah. So you start... And each one of these rhythms is stable. But then when you add all of them together, then you create this sense of chaos. Yeah. Um, uh, so this this will be just since we're talking about rhythm uh, something else I think I mean we talked about the, the raw quality and how violent it feels especially when it was written um, how it comes back to everything that is visceral that is sort of animal inside of us mm-hmm. uh, so I think a movement that really displays this and uh, that shows how different this was from other things that were composed at the time, like Impressionism, like, you know, Debussy and Ravel. <laughs> it's like, it seems like a completely different world. Yeah. It's the glorification of the chosen one. This is after the virgin has been picked. Uh-huh. She's chosen. So now the other virgins are exalting her and celebrating. And celebrating the fact that they get to live. Exactly. <laughs> and she does. Yeah. It always makes me think of a Hitchcock movie, <laughs> like the birds, yes, you know. Absolutely. Like
that's the end of the moment. So you see what I mean? Yeah. It's very powerful. It's very powerful. That's it's incredible. I mean, it just it's so sort of uh, jarring the whole absolutely. thing. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it's the way. And the interesting thing is that the I guess from a harmonic standpoint, mm -hmm. it's not atonal. It's very precisely built, like his harmonic language, mm -hmm. but makes it very personal at the same time. It's like very Stravinsky, like mm -hmm. it's unmistakably Stravinsky. Um, and also sort of going back to this sort of folk sound world. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you probably know, and as you say, it sounds like film music, and I think it's those kind of elements make it sound like that. It's not quite, you don't hear a melody, yeah. per se, um, because again, the rhythm is the most important force in the movement. Well, it sounds very much like he's scoring action that's happening. A which, absolutely. Which I think like speaks to what you were saying, that like clearly he and Najinsky were in cahoots. Yes, you know, absolutely. They plan this together. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> yeah. believe that. And then you have other movements that definitely have more melodies. What was he inspired by? Because I mean, it's like to me, this sounds like just such an original piece of music, and it's so easy to just say, "Well, Stravinsky was a genius, and he just, you know, sp sprang from the head of Athena." You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, but he, but everybody comes from somewhere. So, so what were his influences? I mean, I know this the folk music. Yeah, is part well, of it, but. I, one of his big, biggest teachers was Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a very famous Russian composer, and he belongs to this other era of Russian music. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a group called the Five, the Mighty Five. Some people call them. This is Russian musicians uh, that establish a Russian nationalistic school of writing. So uh, that's how he, where he came from, and obviously he was very uh, proud of being Russian. Yeah. But then, you know, he went to France and he started expanding his horizons and listening to all these things. So that's, I think, where, and then he was hired by Diaghilev, and he was the head of the Russian ballet. Oh, okay. And he was virtually unknown. Stravinsky was virtually unknown mm -hmm. at the time. And I mean, if you imagine 18, um, 1909 when he wrote Firebird, Stravinsky mm -hmm. was. 29 years old. I mean, he was very young, and this is the thing that like launched him into fame. Okay, the ballet loses. So he was he was actually working for the ballet. I mean, he was he was well. He was hired, being paid to write pieces, write music like for this. the ballet. Okay, correct. And then huh. if you think about it, like uh, some of the designs were done by Picasso for the Russian ballet. Oh my so god! So it was like this coming. And Nijinsky was one of the most famous choreographers in the history of ballet. So it's just the combination of genius. It's like this one thing that Diaghilev had. He was a genius and knowing, like recognizing talent. Did people at that time, I mean, it's, you know, for me, like my, my mind is exploding just thinking about like being, being at this ballet written by Stravinsky with scenes painted by Picasso and choreographed by Nijinsky. It's like, right. <laughs> you know, but did people then who were seeing this have a sense that, that what they were seeing was so incredible and they probably did so. whether they recognized it or not either, either by being shocked mm -hmm. and awed like what the heck yeah. is this you know <laughs> or by seeing wow this is like nothing I've ever heard before and this is amazing yeah. and this is groundbreaking so it's interesting too that that th this music that was meant to um, well maybe or maybe not according to Stravinsky, meant to, <laughs> to sort of illustrate this, you know, violent riot actually 
made a riot happen. <laughs> and, you know, I, mean, a lot of people, I feel like Stravinsky wins there. Absolutely. That's, you know. Absolutely. And I think somehow something tells me that he wanted to provoke. Uh-huh. That, that might have been part of his plan. <laughs> and I think both him and Diaghilev were aware, after, at least after the piece was written, that it was going to be shocking. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because in 1912, he played the version for Four Hands. Mm-hmm. He wrote a version of Four Hands so the ballet could be rehearsed. So it was so complicated that one pianist couldn't play it. There yeah. had to be two pianists and one piano. So he actually uh, had a private hearing of the piece with Debussy playing. Uh, the other set of hands. Wow. And uh, just for musicians and connoisseurs and I guess close friends. And uh, even then they were like, wow, this is incredible. And so I think he knew that it was going to be for sure shocking. I don't know if he knew to what extent, but I think he knew and I think he was probably happy about it. So, this is the final movement? This is the sacrificial dance. So this okay. is where she's dancing herself to death. <gasps> so this is, um, I guess, the, the bottom line of yeah. the show. Um, so this just, for me, it sums up everything that it's incredible about the piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so shocking. It's so powerful rhythmically. The orchestration, the harmony, the idea of polyrhythm, polytonality, everything is in this movement. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to leave the listeners... With, the, with this incredibly exciting music to finish the show. Yeah. Hopefully to spark your curiosity and to say, whoa, I want to hear the whole thing. And it's only 35 minutes long. Yeah. So, Is there a performance that you would, uh, like if somebody wanted to see the ballet, do you know of a good recording that's out there on like YouTube or on video or something that people could watch? I, I have a couple that I like. The Jeffrey Ballet uh-huh. created uh, or reconstructed Nijinsky's original choreography, uh-huh. which was lost, but they, I guess, found it somehow and they recreated it. So it's very interesting to see what it was yeah. uh, at the beginning. And from the modern choreographies, I love Pina Bausch's. Okay. It's so powerful. It's inc- I mean, she's incredible. She's a force of nature. Really? So, this oh is towards the end, so... Stravinsky. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. (laughs) Um, You're going to be giving a performance of the Rite of Spring on December 4th, which you have arranged uh, for two pianos and two percussionists. You'll be playing with Elena, please forgive me if I botch these names, Elena Lacheva on piano. Everybody murders her name, but that's great. So she'll (laughs) be very happy. (laughs) Uh, Blake Wilkins and Jesus Pacheco will be on percussion. Yes. And uh, listeners, if you'd like to go out and see the show, it's going to be, like I said, December 4th, 7.30, at uh, the University of Houston at Dudley Recital Hall. And if you want more information about the event, go to the Moore School of Music website. Um, so so, so Stravinsky, I didn't know that, that he had also done an arrangement of the Rite of Spring for Four Hands. For hands. Yep. Mm-hmm. So did you look at his... Absolutely. I based his, my arrangement on his. Yeah. 
Um, and a lot of people perform this in two pianos. So mm -hmm. basically they take the same music, but they play it in two pianos. It's a little more comfortable. A lot of people just play the arrangement like it is in two pianos. But um, as I said, I was obsessed with this piece. And one day just having a drink with a very good friend of mine, excellent pianist, we were both sharing our passion for this piece. Mm -hmm. And back then I was finishing my doctorate. And I was trying to find a piece that would go well with Tchaikovsky Trio. And then, you know, sometimes when you're drinking, great ideas come. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes terrible and ideas And sometimes come. terrible ideas, yes. But in this case, it was a great one. And I asked him, how would you like to play with me? Since you love it and I love it, so we could play the two-piano arrangement. Mm -hmm. And then he got super excited with the idea. It's like, yes, that's great. Let's do it. And we can do it for my recital, too. And... But then I thought, yeah, you know, but I've heard the arrangement before in two pianos. But I always felt that something was missing. And that's when the great idea came. It's like, wait, how about I make an arrangement and we add percussion? Yeah. So I got to work and uh, we, we premiered it in March. Mm -hmm. That was in December. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was great. It was a huge success. Is As I'm saying, is that the people respond so well to the piece. Everybody yeah. was just on the verge of the seats because it's so... I think it appeals to this sort of instinct, this visceral quality that we all have. It just sounds cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I completely agree with you. Yeah. So that's how it began. And I perform it. This will be the fourth time that I perform it. And uh, I, so. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, Anna Maria, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been, man, like I, I've wanted to talk to somebody about this piece for a while. Wonderful. So it, it was great to get to, you know, hear... Um, a doctor. Oh, yeah, talk yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was very cool. Well, um, listeners, if there's anything that you would like to hear addressed on the classical classroom, please send me an email at dclay at classical917.org. If you want to hear past shows or see what's coming up on the show, just go to classical917.org backslash classroom. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>